One of the lessons from your book, The Hollywood Game Plan, is that any creative needs to understand that this is a dollar-driven industry. Can you explain? Sure. It's one thing to create, and that's fabulous. You're an artist. We need you to do that. But this is a business, and the best, most successful screenwriters and directors and producers and even actors, they know that they have to create and sell. They have to sell themselves. Uh, producers have to sell their product. It is not just, I mean, if you want to just be an artist, take up uh, watercolors. But if you want to be in this business and succeed, you have to tell and sell. Tell and sell, what does that entail? Well, if we're talking about, let's say, pitching, um, then you have to tell the story of the show you want to make and you have to sell it. You, you, you have to say it in a way that gets people excited about it and um, leaning forward and can't wait to hear more. Um, and your job is to sell it. A lot of creatives feel like, if I just have a manager or an agent, they'll do all the work. That is not true. Everybody wants to believe that, but it's not true. You have to work as hard as you did before, even when you have a representation. Is it true that nothing is greenlit unless it's viewed as profitable? That is really an interesting question. I, I think the right answer to that or an obvious answer to that is who is green lighting? If it's a nonprofit organization, they don't care. If it's a for-profit organization, a studio, a network, a production company, although mostly production companies can't green light, mostly studios and, and uh, executives and networks or cable channels or streaming, they're in this to make money. Uh, they may love your project. Some people, some decision makers go, I just love that project. And they may, they may order something that they know won't be as profitable, but they love it so much they're gonna make it. That doesn't happen all that often. Do you get a lot of pushback from the people that you mentor on this topic? Pushback in terms of why do I have to sell or why are they only picking up things that will make money? Both. Um, I think people, artists, you know what I mean? Creatives um, would rather not sell. They would rather think that the business is about putting out art. And, but most of my clients, most of the people I mentor, they're savvy enough to realize that this is a business. There's show and then there's business, show business. And they may be unhappy, but they don't really push back because they understand that people are in it to make a profit. Now, you don't want to just make something that you think will make money, to pitch something or sell something just to make money. You want your heart to be in it and you want to be passionate about it, but uh, yeah, it has to be something that's going to make money. Well, if we want our heart to be in it, I mean, so many of our own stories, we think 
that's what, what we would be sort of dialed into, but not everybody is going to find us interesting. And so right. we have to know that there may not be an audience for a very niche story. I think no matter how niche your story is, if you can find the universal themes in it, um, that makes it much more saleable. I have a client who's a director and she's writing a feature and she's writing a feature based on her own experience of being a mom and a mom who's a director, but took time off to have her child and isn't sure how she's going to get back in. So she wrote something about female, a female fine artist who sacrificed her artistic ambitions to take care of her husband and family. And I said, that's okay. That's only going to be interesting to women. You've got to make it something that all of us who've ever stood up for ourselves in spite of the obstacles can relate to. So no matter how specific your story is, if you make it universal, universal themes, you're going to have a much easier time of selling it. So almost genderless in some sense. Genderless. Because then we, we were eliminating maybe half of the audience. Right. It's Although too specific. I, you know, it's interesting about genderless. I wouldn't say genderless. I would say gender specific, if that's what you want to write, but that what the story you're telling is something that all genders can relate to because it's such a human story. Sure. I mean, there's fathers equally, maybe even more so that have sacrificed sort of a, a dream or a calling yeah. in, in the name of making money. Yeah. What do you think about projects that are made with passion first, profits last? Right. For the artist, for the writer, for the producer, I think that's the way you lead. You lead with your passion. It's not up to you necessarily to think about whether this will make a profit. Although if you're smart, You'll put your business hat on as well as your artist hat on. From a buyer's perspective, passion projects always have the possibility of being so deep and so compelling that they will feel like there's profit availability there. But they put profit first. They're happy that you're passionate about it. Sometimes that really moves them. Uh, and th there's development executives and creative executives at studios who your passion may be the thing that gets them excited to kick it upstairs, but the final decision makers, they are going to look at the bottom line. And so is that like the real litmus test is, is I can be a creative and think that my personal story is, it's just going to change the world, but I'm blinded by my own experience. And so is that where getting feedback from a script consultant, some type of a, a, a writing group before taking it and trying to pitch it? Is absolutely. So Did I step on you there? No, no. Okay. Um, absolutely. Before anybody takes anything out to pitch, to try and sell, to get representation, you should have many eyes on it. You should have people who are regular people, uh, not in the business, get their feedback, but then take it to somebody 
in the business, who understands how the business works, to read it and say, you know what, it's not there yet, or this is fabulous, it's a home run. Don't take anything out before it's been vetted. Because you only get one shot, you really only get one shot, and you don't want to blow that by having it not formatted correctly or being so insular that nobody else is going to be interested in it. When you say one shot, do you mean one shot for that particular project? Or just one shot in general? Let's say you're looking for representation. Um, if, if what you're sending out is not blazing hot, you get one shot with that agent or manager. Um, if you're trying to sell something and, you know, pitch it and sell it, uh, you get the shots, the number of shots where you have the number of meetings to sell it. But I got to tell you, if you don't sell it because it's not ready, they're not likely to set another meeting with you for another project. It's sad, but it's true. Sure. And rather hear the, the truth. What if, let's say five years have gone by, what if, okay, someone was in a different life situation or headspace and then they've had a transformation and now their story is so much more compelling. Do they get that chance five years later or is their name still in a database? Uh, there is no database. Oh, okay. There's just up here who remembers people. Um, well, there might be a database, but if they've written, <clears throat> excuse me, if they've written new material and that material is a home run blazing hot, they have another shot. They really do. If they can get it to new people. And the truth is in this day and age, decision makers, you know, lower level executives are moving around like crazy, including leaving the business. So you, you'll be talking to somebody new, most likely. Okay, so there's not, it's not like there's a file on you somewhere and then no. they're going to pull it. Oh, I remember in 2017 and you said, yeah, I think we're going to pass it. So you can be a whole new person, really, and pitch something. Yes, but if there's people that remember you, it, it's going to be, an, you're going to have to just kill it on your script. So they go, wow, they cannot deny you. Look at how this person, look how far they've come. And wow, they really, in five years, they learned, they grew. Um, yeah. How does someone know that the entertainment industry is right for them? You can do anything else. I'm sure you've had other people tell you this. If there's any other business that you can do and be happy, go do that. Because this is such a tough, competitive totally rewarding, but super competitive business with lots of rejection. If you have a thick skin and it's hard when you're an artist because your art, um, my colleague, Jeff Melvoin in the WGA showrunner training program says you like an M and M, a M and M being, you have to have a, a hard, uh, candy shell, but a soft chocolate center. Oh, so that's the image to think of. You have to have your art, which is the soft chocolate, but you have to be able to withstand the business, which is the hard candy shell. 
Well, there are some people, though, that they thrive on a challenge. You know, mm -hmm. they get bored easily, usually because they're good at everything. Yeah. And then they, they just kind of like, no, this is too easy, and they, they tire of it. So it seems like, too, that maybe someone in that headspace would, it would be good to try. I don't know, maybe they would get bored of different things. Well, if they're bored because they're so successful, like, bless them because <laughs> they're... A, they are a unicorn because that's not how it generally happens. Um, but if somebody is willing to take risks, if somebody is willing to withstand rejection and get back up, if somebody has perseverance, then this is the business for them. If, if they have a driving passion to tell a story or to tell stories or to make a difference and through Entertainment, I think people can really make a difference in the culture, in the conversation. And if you're driven to do that and you can deal with all the other things, the ancillary things that go with it, then this is absolutely the business for you. Ancillary like what? Rejection, rejection, competitiveness, rejection having to get your 10,000 hours in, having to become excellent at what you are wanting to do, at what you're doing, be head and shoulders above everybody else. That's what it takes to stand out. And be easy to work with, likable. Oh yeah. Um, you know, do great in a room. Yes. That's not hard. Oh no, that's easy. Um, <laughs> I tell my daughter who, and I didn't help her get this job, I promise you, she's the showrunner's assistant on the show Never Have I Ever. Um, her boss is the showrunner on that show and she wants to be a staff writer. And I tell her and every other young person that wants to be a television writer, you need to have talent but talent is not the most important thing. You have to have a fantastic work ethic. You have to have a personality that people want to be around, that you're a pleasure, you're pleasant to be around. That work ethic is I'll do whatever it takes and then some. You need to know people and you need to continue to expand and grow your community of mutually beneficial relationships. That's all the things in your control that you have to do. And then luck and timing come into it too. Wow, because it seems counterintuitive, maybe that's the wrong word, but as being a writer and, and having stories and being in your head all the time, usually those come from being away from people and actually enjoying that. They should be feature writers. They should write <laughs> screenplays for motion pictures because you get to be by yourself when you do that. But if you have an interest in being in television, it is a collaborative experience. And you need to be able to listen to other people's ideas, add to them, not reject them, and, and be somebody who's, to, to use the word again, additive, and somebody who's fun. You, you need to end upbeat and doesn't take themselves too seriously. What if a writer knows they want to write, right. A, B, there's so many shows they love to watch, they want to yes. be part of it, they want to be additive, as you said, yes. but they don't actually know what a successful career looks like. Right. A successful career, in order to, 
if we're talking about television, in order to be successful in television, you need to be able to have people who advocate for you. You can't just have your agent or manager send your work out. You need to get alliances and you need people to say when you're up for a show, wow, I've worked with her or he's terrific. I mentored him and you need that. So you need a temperament that goes along with making connections, hopefully genuine connections, being of help to people and not taking yourself too seriously. How does someone deprogram themselves from that? What if they don't realize they take themselves seriously? If they don't realize that they take themselves seriously, they're going to run into a brick wall. People based on their talent may give them a shot once, but they won't be invited back. And so the world will give them feedback on that. Or if you have a lovely, generous showrunner or upper level writer, they'll take you aside and say, this is a problem. You're, you're a downer and you, you, your sense of self-importance is getting in the way of you being a team player. You should only be so lucky to have somebody like that. We've all had teachers probably in our lives that have been wonderful and they have kind of taken you under their wing yeah. with, with good intentions. Yeah. And then we've also probably all had the opposite. And so if, if we're lucky to find someone that, that can, maybe they see themselves in that student or whatever and they, yeah. they genuinely want to help them, there's no ulterior motive. Well, that's a teacher or a mentor. That's not employment. And that's a difference. A mentor or a teacher, if they're very generous, if they're savvy, they'll say, you are wonderful, but your attitude is going to sink you. If we're talking about an employment situation, you have one shot. If there's a, I, I don't know whether I said it in my book or someplace else, but there's a life is too short list. And even if you're successful, if you're annoying or difficult or awful <laughs> as a person, uh, people won't want to be in business with you because life is too short. If you're combative, if you don't take notes, they'll remember that. Okay. What if you're none of those things, but you, you freeze up in a room? You're mm. actually probably a good person inside, but you just you have a hard time in a mixer, you have a hard time in a room. Right. Well, the thing I recommend to all writers is take improv classes. That will help you stay present in the moment. When you're anxious, it's because you're in your head. You're not in the moment talking to somebody. You're thinking, what are they thinking about me? Oh my God, I'm not saying the right thing. Improv is a fantastic way to do that. Um, another way is there's some, there used to be something called Toastmasters. Um, if there still is, go do that. Learn how to speak in front of people. Um, I had a client who was so anxious in the room and I gave her the name of a therapist who does cognitive behavioral therapy and he helped her get past it.
We talked earlier about uh, being tough, and you said that there was a showrunner or someone that you knew who said kind of like we're, we have to be like M&Ms. I like yes. that analogy. So yeah. a hard candy shell on the uh, outside, right. and then a nice chocolate soft inside. Yes. Um, can toughness ruin someone's writing? What if you've mastered that part, but you've also then lost yourself? Because now you have this Teflon shell, and the humanities been pushed down so much. You have a problem. The truth is you okay. have a problem. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Number one. Sure. And um, you need to figure out how to get back to the thing that got you excited about it in the first place. Let's say you're a writer, excited about being a writer in the first place. And try and get back there. Um, I think you can ask your friends for help and say, you know what, I've, I've lost my North Star here. Can, do you have suggestions on how, on how I can get it back? I mean, maybe you work with a coach or something like that, a therapist, and say, this was great, it helped me be tough, but as you said, I've lost the artist of, in me. And you need to get that back. Maybe you go on an artist retreat, maybe you take new classes, you, you just try and get in touch with that part of yourself again because just being tough is, is not going to do the job for you. It really is a fine line. You have to walk both of them. Sure. Then maybe, you know, law or real estate's for you. Right. <laughs> not not, not uh, being a, a show writer. What if your friends are all yes people? They don't want to tell you the truth. Find new friends. Okay. Um... You have to have people that will tell you the truth. You really do. And it's so interesting because you want people who will tell you the truth, but not people who are going to be mean, who they have a vested interest in pushing you down. Um, that's why I go back to a therapist or a coach. A coach has nothing invested in you except your success. And they can say, this is not working. You, you came to me because you're having a problem and this is what the problem is. And let's work on how we can fix it. Sure. Well, therapists still want to get paid though. That's <laughs> well, so do consultants, <laughs> so do coaches. Yeah. So yeah, but they want to continue the relationship. That so. is true. You know what? I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking <laughs> about myself as a coach. I just want them to get better. There are people who are just in it for themselves and they're going to string you along. So try and find somebody who has your best interests and wants you to get to where you need to go quickly. How do you know if you're a storyteller? You love to tell stories. You've been telling stories since you could talk. You, I have people that have applied to my CBS program and they write in their letter of interest. I started writing stories when I was five years old or I watched... Somebody just did. I watched SpongeBob, SpongeBob Square Pants, and then I wrote the ep the next episode of what I wanted it to be. And she was like six. So you know, maybe you keep a journal. You are a writer. You're a storyteller. If you love telling stories, what do great storytellers have in common? They have something they need to express. 
They want to delight someone. They want to scare someone. They want to move someone. They want their story to make an impact. And that's how you know. If you, if you have a burning desire to get your story and stories out there, you're a storyteller. What are the key elements of a good story? The key elements are you care deeply about the characters and that the story has unexpected turns. Things happen in it that you wouldn't have anticipated, but they're still within the world that the writer has created. But it always comes down to the characters. It's always about, do we care about them? Do we love them? Or can we not turn away because they're such a train wreck? It's the characters. That, we're, we're hardwired for story, and the heart of a story is character. And you can have a great plot, great plot, but if there isn't compelling characters to go with it, nobody cares. How does a storyteller make their projects more meaningful? Meaningful. I think the more personal it is, the more meaningful it is. If you're willing to tackle topics that are meaningful, that aren't just, um, this is so mean, but Emily in Paris, fabulous clothes. You gotta love the oh, locations, yeah. Yeah. but how meaningful is that really? If, if, if you're willing to explore with depth, you'll find meaning and if you want to move people with your work, you will find stories that are meaningful. Otherwise, people aren't moved. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, but it was a successful show and, and you know, I watched it. It didn't move me in that way, but it was a light, it was very light. Right, we're talking about Emily in Paris. Correct. We all need entertainment too, especially during the pandemic and we're just coming out of it. I sometimes just still watch um, Big Bang Theory because I need to not think about anything. I, and Abbott Elementary, I adore because it's fun. And Emily in Paris is fun and it's eye candy, but is it deeply meaningful? I don't think so. How does a storyteller stay authentic? You constantly check in with yourself with a no BS detector. And when you create something, you say, is this true for me? Is this really true or am I chasing the marketplace and whatever I think people want is what I'm gonna give them. If it's true for you, then it's authentic. If, now sometimes true for you can be so niche that other people can't relate to it. So um, that isn't always the best, but check in with yourself. Make sure that what you're saying and the stories you're telling, that you care about them. And that's how you'll stay authentic. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting dilemma is, is how niche is your story. And we all think our story is relatable, mm -hmm. but um, you know, Obviously not. And if the general audience is not in LA or not in New York, yep. those are going to be different stories in some sense. Absolutely. Then they may not relate to it. It needs to be universal.
When I was at CBS, and this will show you how old I am, we did Murphy Brown, the oh, yeah. first Murphy Brown. And at the time that Diane English came in to pitch it, the, the word on the street was, don't do politics. Nobody can relate to politics. Nobody cares outside the Beltway. But those characters were so charming, so fun, so engaging, that politics didn't matter. So it's about the characters. Do storytellers see the world the same as everyone else? I don't think so. I think storytellers have a keen eye for what's beneath the surface. That's where the richness is. Interesting. You know, they, they talk about um, in books like the drama, the gifted child, right. things like that. Right. Uh, sometimes upbringing makes you more uh, aware of things, whether it's yes. a, a survival, it's, yes. it's by, by necessity. Um, Let's say someone had a wonderful childhood, and it's it's not that, but they just maybe were more introspective. Maybe they were um, an INFJ or ENFJ or something. They um, to go Myers Briggs on you, yeah. Right. They uh, <laughs> they studied people. Storytellers study people and look for truth. If you've been unfortunate enough to have had a traumatic experience growing up or traumatic childhood, you probably know how to dig deeper and you're, you may not be afraid of confronting that. Some people are, and they don't go there. But some people who have worked through their trauma can bring it out in a story in a way that other people can relate to it. There's some stories that are so difficult to watch because they're so raw. But there's people who, who want to see that. How do you know you've met a storyteller? A storyteller is somebody that has a interesting, slightly off-kilter view of the world. That's how you can tell that you're meeting a good storyteller. They, um, they see things slightly differently. They are aware of emotions that not everybody is can access. And when I meet those people, I know it. I know it, and also, often they're raconteurs. They know how to tell a story with a beginning, middle, end, and hook me. That's one way to know you're talking to a storyteller. Leading with trauma? Hate it. Okay. <laughs> Hate it. Don't recommend it. Well, we're, we're in a new, you know, I'm Gen X, so we didn't really do that. We wanted to make right. sure everything looked fluffy and beautiful on the outside. Right. But we're in a new age where I'm actually pleased to see people are okay with different things. But I think we've become so much so as I'm this, and is that okay to do? Or, or is that a little bit too much too soon? Let's, let's wait till the second date to talk about that. I couldn't agree with you more. On the first date, unless you're a certain kind of person, you're not gonna go into the depths of your despair, the depths of your trauma. You need to meet someone and see what their ability to absorb that is. If you just lead with it, that can be overwhelming for people. And, and it can be a turnoff. What I say to people, is because it's so hard to listen to. That's the turnoff. Um, what I tell people is if you have worked through your trauma and you can talk about it in a way that 
isn't raw for you and you can almost, this isn't quite it, but you can almost toss it off and just say, this is a thing that happened so that the person listening doesn't have to feel sorry for you. Then talk about that. If it's still so raw that you're emotionally bleeding from it, don't go there. Don't go there. It's, it's, it's too vulnerable and people really are put off. I think by somebody who's that raw. Some people love it, but most people will back away from it. Is it easy for a great script to go nowhere? A great script, a truly great script. If you have any connection to anybody in the entertainment industry who can look at that and know it's a great script, it's going to go someplace. You're going to get, you're going to get recognized. People will call you. They'll want to take you out for lunch or drinks. They'll want to, um, hire you to write for them. They'll want to, um, have, be in business with you in some way, a great script. Now, if you are living in Oshkosh and you don't know anybody and you're not willing to submit your scripts to contests, it could go nowhere. But if you're willing to get it out there in a way that someone in the entertainment industry would get eyes on it, you will go somewhere for sure. So if someone's script is not quote unquote going anywhere, is it safe to assume it's not any good? Well, what I say is scripts need to be blazing hot. My first boss said that writing is choices. And when you have a character who has to make a choice, the first choice you come up with, anybody could come up with. My dentist would come up with the second choice, pretty obvious. The third choice, a little bit less. And then four, five and six, if you can push yourself to there, it's getting better. If you're at eight, nine and 10, and not many people are 10 that you've forced yourself to try 10 different choices until you get to the very best choice, then that script is good. But if you're, if you're at four or five and you try four or five things and you said, no, this, this is, this is good enough. Then if it's been out there in the marketplace for three or four or five months, it's not the marketplace. It's your script. It's not ready. And I encourage you to either rewrite it or write something else because every time you write a new script, it's going to get better. So it's not them. It's me. Yes. Okay. And what we talked about earlier was that when you meet a storyteller, you can kind of tell that, you know, they see the world in a very different way. They're very dialed in to little details. And is that where the, the real beauty of a storyteller takes over? Is that, that taking it beyond level four yes. in terms of how, you know, little nuances to the, to the script? Yes, I think so. Great storytellers are at seven, eight, nine, uh, brilliant, you know, Aaron Sorkin 10, right? But the rest of us humans, you know, <laughs> regular people, and it's not fair. Yeah. Seven, eight, nine. 
You know, that if you're willing to bleed for it, <laughs> to get to seven, eight, or nine, then I think you're probably a really good storyteller. What are the best ways for a new writer to get industry pros to read their script? Really good question. If you don't know anybody, there are, first of all, beware, be really wary of coverage services. They're not all made equally. You need to know who's reading your script. It could be a junior executive. It could be a bartender. And what I tell people is if you are getting coverage, um, only listen to what resonates. And if you re and be really honest with yourself, is that a good note? Is that a note from somebody who doesn't get what I'm doing at all? So one way is contests. Um, you don't have to know anybody to enter your scripts into contests. And if you come in first, second, or third in a prestigious contest, agents, managers, producers will find you. If you don't do that, there are services, but always check and see who is behind the service, what their real credits are. And if they've been doing something, if they were a reader for six months, that's not who you want. Okay, so having never entered a contest, would they say who some of the industry professionals are or they say have worked with but you don't actually know the person's name, can't check their credits? You mean in a contest right. or a coverage service? Right. If they're not telling you, then don't go there. Right. Yeah. I'm always wary of websites, whatever industry, where you don't know the family name or the person behind it, even if there's yeah. no picture, but just to have a general sense of who yes. someone is behind it that you're giving your money to. Yeah. If they're not willing to tell you who they are, they don't have to necessarily give you a last name, better if they do, but what that person's credentials are. If they're not willing to do that specifically, don't spend your money there. Okay, so what if a, a new writer has identified maybe five contests that yes. are definitely legit, they see yep. it on screenwriting, Twitter, people are discussing it. Should they continue to enter them even if they haven't won and they haven't gotten any favorable notes back? Yes, continue to write and get better at writing. I've known people for my CBS program that have applied four times and it wasn't until the fifth time that they got in because it wasn't until the fifth year that their material was good enough. But if year after year after year, you're not getting any traction, then there's, then you're missing something. And maybe you should take a class. Maybe you should do an online course. But again, only reputable ones. Don't waste your money on... I always like to say, in terms of contests, coming in third place in the Schmageggy Film Festival is going to do nothing for you. Um, yeah, push yourself to that seven, eight, or nine. Sure, sure. Yeah, you can, you can check in on what screenwriters are doing on, on Reddit, on LinkedIn. Yes. Yes. Um, on Twitter, and so yes. you, know, you see people who are very proud that they've placed and, and to, to follow suit, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
Fortune favors the bold? Absolutely. Why do you love this? Uh, is this a saying or a proverb? Yes, it's a proverb. And do I remember who said it? No, <laughs> but okay. it is a famous saying. This, if you're not willing to take a risk, sell insurance. If you're willing to take a risk, if you're willing to boldly say, this is my vision, I stand behind it, I'm putting in my 10,000 hours, I'm gonna get better, I have a story to tell, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to tell it, then interestingly, the universe comes along and gives you a push. That's what I think. Okay, I like that. Uh, what if there are responsibilities? You know, you talked about a, a woman that you're working with who, who ha had a child to raise mm -hmm. and understandably had to put things on the back burner sure. for a while. Um, how does someone navigate that? I, I, I don't know, I guess it's specific for each situation. I think so, but you know, I have a number of clients in that situation. And we come up with a plan for how they can get time in, even if it's a little time, on a daily basis, 30 minutes a day. And I know some writers that get up 30 minutes early before their kids get up. I know some writers that stay up 30 minutes later if their brain is still working. If you do that, and I say only work four days a week, I really believe you need to have a life and in order to write about something, you need creativity in to have creativity out. And just carve some time for yourself. I know it's really hard. I don't mean to be flip about it, but 30 minutes, even if it's 15 minutes a day, you will find yourself making progress. Okay, what if someone is lucky enough to have that time but they feel selfish. We, we talked to another, uh, both writer and mom, and th there is a connotation sometimes that it's selfish, that what I'm doing is, is you know, wh why, why am I doing this? I, I should be taking care of someone else. Codependent. Um, <laughs> read Melody Beattie. Okay. Right, read Melody Beattie <laughs> for that codependence. Uh, okay. You have to find the strength inside yourself that says, I deserve this. I don't mean leave your children in the street, no. but carve out 30 minutes. You have to find inside yourself the essential you that yearns to be an artist and say, I'm gonna devote some of my time and energy on a regular basis to that. Um, I just saw the documentary Judy Bloom Forever, and she had to ultimately, I'm not suggesting this, but she had to ultimately leave her husband because he didn't want her to pursue her craft. Don't leave your husband, don't leave your wife. I'm not saying that. Sure. I'm saying it's good to surround yourself with people that support you in your, in your desire. Oh, I want to see that movie. I did not. I love Judy Bloom. So it was a documentary, uh -huh. actually. Okay, right. Yeah. And that just came out. Just came out. Wow. Because now her her Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Yeah, it came out. Good time. Do well. Well, yeah. That's a that's a tough uh, comedic. Uh, it is. <laughs> you know, not everyone's going to get some of the humor there. Yeah. And things like that. But um, that was that's a landmark book for it. 
Absolutely many, many people. Is. And was and is. Still is, yeah. Yeah. And has been banned. So, but I, I want to I see that documentary. That's yeah. good. I like that. What is the general timeline for getting a screenplay read if you're a new writer and you're sending it out to professionals? Yeah. Okay. Here's what I say. First of all, I have a pet peeve that I want to share with the people who are watching this. Do not ask somebody you've just met to read your script. It, I did a blog about Hollywood etiquette. Don't do that. Because I just want people to think about this. You're asking me, a person that you don't know, and I don't know you, to take two hours out of my life, away from my family and my work, to read your script. Wait until you know somebody. So please, please, please don't say, nice to meet you, will you read my script? But let's say you have been able to put it in the hands of somebody who is in the industry. What I say is give people six weeks to start and then reach out to them every month after that, every three or four weeks, and always be respectful and say, I know how busy you are. I just wanted to circle back and see if you've had an opportunity to read it. And if not, no worries. I'll check back in again in another month. I know somebody who gave it to a showrunner and it took that showrunner a year to read it, but she finally did and she gave her feedback. But if you've been reaching out to people and don't annoy them, just do it regularly, but not annoyingly. And if they haven't responded to you in a year, stop reaching out and find somebody else. What about if someone sends it to someone or, or emails someone and says, I know you know so-and-so, fill in the blank. Can you get it to that person? Now you're asking that person to risk that relationship, their reputation, Don't breaking do protocol. Yeah. That is the same thing as asking somebody to read your script. You ask me to give it to... I have a funny story if you want to hear it. I do, yeah. Okay. My friend Doug who I hired at Amblin, which is Steven Spielberg's company, was at his grandmother's funeral. And he was walking back to the car with the rabbi. And the rabbi said, I have a script in my car. Could you please give it to Steven? Oh. Don't do that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, don't do that. Okay. Um, you're asking me, if you say, will you get it to so-and-so, I don't know you, to use up one of my chits. To, you, to, to use up one of my credibility chits. Don't do that. You're asking too much. Now, if I meet you and we have a relationship and I really like you, I'll ask you to read your script. Let me read your script. And if the script is fabulous, I will pass it along. Don't ask me to pass it along. But if I love it, let me tell you, I'm going to pass it along because it makes me look good. I discovered this person. But you don't ask. You let it happen. Well, what ended up happening in that situation? Or is that too personal? No, she got wrapped. With the, the person whose rabbi asked. Oh, nothing happened. Nothing happened. Right. <laughs> because... 
Doug would no more take that person's script and give it to Stephen, his boss, than he would walk on the moon. What happened is that Doug would not hire that rabbi to do his grandfather's funeral. If we put together a list of how not to break in to the entertainment industry, what would five things be? Five. How not to get work. How not to get work by Carol Kirshner. Five ways. Don't put in the time to develop your craft. Don't reach out to people to find out if they know someone who could introduce you, not a decision maker, but just somebody that might be willing to meet with you, Zoom coffee for 10 or 15 minutes. Somebody who does not want to enlarge their community of relationships. Um, something else not to do is don't be a jerk. And we were just talking about this. Don't ask somebody you don't know to read your script or get your script to Steven Spielberg or somebody else. Um, don't be generous. You need to be generous. There's so many generous people in this business. The perception is everybody's like this, but somebody helped them. So if you approach them correctly and you are humble and you are respectful, they'll give you 15 minutes of their time, unless they're a jerk, and there certainly are jerks. Um, don't be annoying. Is that more than five? That's more than five. That's okay. I'm enjoying this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I like what you say. And the thing is, is that I think these relationships, they take time. Yes. And so we're in such a fast world right. that it, it can't just be you meet someone at a mixer, yes. get their card or their contact info, and now you have the, this ask. Yes. What I say, and this I firmly believe in. First of all, I hate the word networking. It makes me feel icky to even say it. I like the word connecting. If you make a genuine connection with somebody, then follow that up. Um, don't ask somebody for something when you don't know them. Think about if you were working and somebody said to you, I know you got a full-time job, but will you do X for me? It'll only take you an hour and a half. Um, I always say, and this is in my book, it's in my blogs, it's the correct Hollywood ask. You ask somebody for something, but you give them a gracious way out. So you might say, I know you're incredibly busy, but would you have the time to do X? If you have the time, would you do X? Is there somebody, I know how busy you are, is there somebody in your office that would be willing to X, look at my script, give me some thoughts on it. Um, when you ask somebody to read your script, don't ask them for detailed notes. Just say, I'd love your general opinion of it because that makes it just an hour read instead of a two hour endeavor because nobody in the entertainment industry wants to say no to you because they don't know. Unless they're a jerk, again, there are jerks, they don't want to say no to you because someday they may be working for you or looking for a job from you. So make it so that it's easy for them to decline if they have to. What are the assumptions most new writers get wrong about the business? 
that everybody's awful, that nobody wants to help them. And that's often because they don't know how to do what we talked about, the soft Hollywood ask. <sighs> that it's easy. I think that's a big assumption that newcomers have, that it's easy. They read a story about one person who made it like that, and they think that's going to be them. Um, they assume they don't have to do a lot of work, that somebody will like them enough that they'll go, okay, you keep, yeah, I like you, I'm gonna hire you and, and let you get better while I pay you. That would be a bad assumption. What are some common excuses you hear from new writers, whether they're bad at pitching themselves or, you know, things about the entertainment industry that are, that you see, you know what, you're, you're putting up roadblocks, you're, you're making right. excuses. If you're bitter and you don't like people and you think everybody's out to get me, that will not help you. If you think I'm just in it for what I can get and not how I can help somebody, that's a problem because that generosity of spirit goes so far. It really does. I always say be kind. There's no downside to being kind. And you never know who you're gonna be kind to who later on will go, wow, that person was kind. I wanna help them. Sure, I'm, I'm all for kindness, but you can also be stepped on and taken advantage of. True, don't be a doormat. Don't be a doormat. It is having confidence without being a jerk. It is having a belief in yourself without being annoying. And when you have that, you can think about how you can help somebody else and not get stepped on. And you have to have self-esteem. This business, it, it may feel like it's kind of wearing you down, but you have to have self-esteem in order to put yourself out there, in order to sell something, in order to sell yourself. I think a small bit of delusion helps though. Sure. Because if you're too aware of the odds, you'll never do anything. Here's what I say. People break in every day. Why not you? And that's what you should tell yourself. Somebody's breaking in today, why not me? Well, it may be because you haven't done the work, it may be because something else, but if you have and you're truly ready, why not you? Keep that in mind. And you mentioned bitterness, and although that word is, is definitely a negative, I think there's a healthy sense of putting up some boundary. Sure. Because if you're too open and you're too fresh off the bus and you think this is all wonderful and, and take things at face value, you're gonna learn very quickly that's not how right. it is. You, you should be mindful. You should read the room, read the business, and not lead with your heart on your sleeve. That doesn't help you. It ne you need to make sure that it's sort of a safe place to do that. And I think that if you're a puppy dog, oh my, oh my, oh my, um, that will not serve you. 
But if you're genuinely enthusiastic with confidence, that will serve you. People love passion and enthusiasm. But if you're, oh my, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, that's going to be a problem. A vetted writer versus an extremely talented writer. Which one is going to succeed? The vetted writer, because you have to have a level of talent in order for people to want to help you, to recognize your talent. Somebody with raw talent, let me tell you, talent is important, but it's not the most important thing. It's whether people want to help you, whether you are generous. I talked about generous. It's whether you're meeting enough people. It's about, do you have the right work ethic? It's do people want to be around you? The most brilliant writer isn't necessarily the one that's going to get traction. You need all the other parts of the business, the other parts of the whole in order to succeed. Raw talent is a fabulous place to start. But you have to know what the business is and know what else is needed. What are the different ways a writer can find an agent? It's a question I get asked all the time. And there are a number of ways. One is enter a contest and come in first. Um, if you're a quarter finalist, that's not going to do anything. Um, and as I said before, if you're a quarter finalist in the Schmigegi Film Festival, nobody is looking at that. If you are in a very prestigious competition and you come in first or second, agents and managers will find you. And the annoying thing is, is that agents say, when you say, how does somebody get an agent? They say, don't worry, when you're ready, we'll find you. And there's a lot of truth in that, no matter how annoying it is. So that's one. Another way is if it's television and you can get into one of the network fellowships, they will introduce you to agents and managers. If you can find a mentorship program, they will introduce you to their um, agents or managers. If you do a one woman, one man, one person show, and you put it up and it has a fantastic reaction. That's how Fleabag came about. They'll find you. Um, another way, my daughter, who's a comedy writer, an aspiring comedy writer, one of her best friends did a video that went viral and she was repped within a week. And they keep inviting her to go back to Saturday Night Live and apply to be a writer there. So. If you make a big splash in social media, that is a way to do it. Um, knowing somebody who knows somebody who can get your script to an agent or manager or an agent or manager's assistant is one way to do it. I used to say, don't bother with this, but cold queries can work. I've now had three mentees and a client who wrote fabulous letters, cold queries, emails, and they made their themselves so appealing and the logline for one of their scripts so appealing that the 
manager or agent said, I'd like to read your script. And then they had a meeting with them because the script was so good and they got repped. Another way is, and this is hard if you're not in the business, is to have a job working in the business, even if it's as a PA somewhere, because you'll meet somebody who will know somebody who will know somebody who will know somebody who can get your script in front of an agent or a manager. Another way is to have a podcast these days, podcasts, wow, that is super successful. They'll find you. Um, the easiest way is to already be making money as a screenwriter because agents love to poach their competition's uh, clients. And those are the ways, those are the ways. So with the people that queried and sent these letters out, how did they know the names and where did they find the contact information? How they actually get the contact information? IMDB Pro has contact information for agents and managers. I recommend that people look for a manager first. There's so many more of them than there are agents and the ones just starting out are often willing to take newbies and, and sort of invest in them. And one way to do it is to look at your favorite movie, your favorite television shows, go to IMDb, look up their name and see who represents them, and then go to that person's contact page, and that's how you do it. What should a new writer expect from a meeting with an agent? In a meeting, if you're a hot commodity, the manager or agent, it's like being on a date when somebody wants to get you in bed. They will tell you anything, how beautiful you are, how handsome you are, how much they love you. What you should be thinking about in that meeting, if you're a hot commodity, is Ask them very clearly, where do you see my career in five years and how will you help me get there? The thing to remember is, if you go with this person, they work for you. You wanna make sure that they've read your material and they get who you are. They really understand who you are as a writer and they get your vibe and that your vibes match. Um, you may not, you may want a super aggressive agent, or that may not be your style, and you want somebody who's super hardworking and ambitious, but not super aggressive. You can expect them to ask you what you want in a relationship with a manager. You can expect them to ask, who do you know in the business? Because the more people you know, the easier it is for them to do their job. They might ask you, what are your favorite shows? What are your favorite movies? They may ask you, what is your sweet spot as a writer? What do you like to write? What are you great at writing? They will definitely ask you, what else do you have in your portfolio besides what they read for you to get to that meeting? That's probably about it. They'll, they'll make small talk to get you to, now that's if you're a hot commodity. Um, and it's all your choice because you're meeting with five different managers and you get to decide. It's really who you vibe with and who has a track record in getting their clients work. If you're new 
and you're not yet a hot commodity, you should be prepared to tell them what else you have in your portfolio. You should be prepared to tell them what your career ambitions are. You should be prepared to tell them who you know in the business and the ways that you meet people. They're going to want to know that. You should be prepared to ask them who are your other clients that I might talk to. Um, they may take umbrage at that. And if they do, that's not the person for you. Um, you should be prepared to ask them, how do they see you getting to the next level in your career? And how can they help you do it? They may ask you how often, how long does it take you to write a script and be prepared to be honest with that answer. So unlike a first date where you wouldn't say, you know, what, when, when are we setting our wedding? In, a, in an agent meeting, you would be very upfront about this is what I expect and what can I expect from you? Would that be a little bit too fast too soon? Well, you don't probably have a lot, unless you're that hot commodity, you don't have a lot of shots with an agent or manager. You probably have one meeting with them. I'm not suggesting you come in guns blazing. I think you come in and you're complimentary to them and you say, you know, I would love to work with you. I, it would be fantastic. I'd love to ask you a couple of questions and say it in a humble way, but ask those questions. Okay. So there's direction to the meeting. It's not just you're showing up and you have a, an actual plan. Yes. You want to think ahead. Now, sometimes and it's not very often. This may just be a meet and greet, get to know you, see what they think of you. Um, and it's not what we call a signing meeting. It's really just a get to know you. They read something of yours. They liked it. They, they want to know more about you. And then it's really about having a relationship, a, a conversation with them like you would with a friend or a new person who you wanted to be friends with. But if it turns to business, be prepared to ask those questions. Okay. Have that in your back pocket. Absolutely. What are some red flags a new writer should be aware of when meeting with an agent? If the person is a jerk, if they haven't read you, if they're blowing smoke, if they're not transparent about the type of people they represent, if they're late to the meeting, if they talk at you the whole time, if they're just being blustery, if they don't ask you about yourself. And again, if they haven't read your work, if they don't have an opinion about your work, these are red flags. How do we know someone's blowing smoke? If they tell you you're fabulous, you're fabulous, you're fabulous. And you've only written one script they're probably blowing smoke. If they say, oh yeah, I can get you a meeting with Spielberg. I can get you a meeting with JJ Abrams. You need to, that's a red flag because they don't know you enough yet. And if they could get you those meetings, you're probably not meeting with the people that can get you those meetings when you're starting out. Talking at someone versus talking with them. Yes. Oh, pet peeve. They just talk about themselves. It's a wall of words. They talk, talk, talk. They don't give you any time to 
They never take a breath for you to say something. They're just talking about themselves and they're talking nonstop and they're not making eye contact and they're not pausing and they're not reading the room. They don't care about you. So they're not, you, you see they're not picking up on social cues. Right. Okay. They take themselves so seriously. They love the sound of their voice. That's not somebody who's going to help you because if they're that way with you, they're going to be that way with decision makers and that turns decision makers off. What if an agent rejects a writer? That's sad, but move on to the next one. But we're sensitive artists, Carol. We, 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 we feel things. This was it's our big painful. chance. It's painful. Um, I worked at a job where my contract didn't get picked up for a second part of it. I was so devastated. I ate ice cream for days. I bought shoes. I felt terrible. And then I moved on. And my husband has a great way of looking at it. He said, wallow in it. Wallow in your pain. Wallow in the disappointment. Give yourself three days to feel nothing. Stay in bed. Watch stupid television. And then move on and then move on unless you want to give up forever right then. And don't do that. This is part of the business. Feel it, acknowledge it, experience it, give yourself the space to do that and then move on to the next. What makes an executive hire a writer? Well, there's a couple of different things that they would hire them for. If somebody is pitching a show, I mean, my expertise is primarily television, but a lot of this applies to motion pictures, also to features. If someone is pitching it and they nail the pitch, they're going to want to be in business with them. If there's somebody who, if an executive is in charge of finding writers to be on a television show, if you have a meeting with that person, they want to know that you're not a psycho. They want to, they will have read you and they will think this is a terrific writer. Now let me see if I can get along with them. Let me see if the showrunner I'm thinking of for the show they would be right for would get along with them. Those are the reasons why somebody would hire. That's why an executive would hire a writer. What are the most important elements of a pitch? Well, it's interesting because pitching is an art. It's not a science. And I have an online course called How to Pitch a TV Show That Sells, and we talk all about this. But the important elements are the characters. That's super important. How the characters are going to grow and change over the pilot and then over the series. People think that the pilot story is the most important thing and it's not because you're not just selling a pilot, you're selling a series. So it is what the hook is. That's super important. Why are people going to watch it? Why are they going to watch it now? Why will it stand out from 500 plus other scripted television shows? You got to have a strong hook. Then it's, tell me about the world. Also, what's really important in a pitch 
and you talked about this earlier in, in another video, is having a personal story that ties you to that project. It's not like you just said, oh, wouldn't it be funny if uh, there was a roller coaster and it was haunted? You have to, and I'm a terrible, I'm not a writer, which is why I just gave that terrible example. Um, but you have to connect with it somehow. When I was home alone one night, I was sure that a ghost was there and I was terrified. And I thought, what if somebody is terrified of that and terrified on a roller coaster too? Find a way to make an emotional connection with them. Find that emotional connection in the project and use that to connect with the buyer. If you tell an authentic emotional story, they will be hooked in. So it's the hook. It's what I call your inspiration story. Why you, why this project? It is talking about the characters, why they're unique, why we haven't seen them before. It's about the world. What does that world look like? You want to paint it. You want us to feel it. Tell us why we want to be immersed into it for 40 hours. Super important. What is the engine of the show? If it's a TV show, why does this have legs past just the pilot? And season arcs are really important and knowing what that is. And then you have something that I call the coda, which is a concluding remark where you go back to your hook and then you say why people will watch it, why it's timely, why it's universal, why now? How long is a pitch to an executive? What should a writer think about in preparation? Great question. Some people think it goes on forever. It doesn't. If you're pitching television, a comedy pitch should be 12 to 15 minutes long. A one hour drama or one hour show, it should be 20 to 25 minutes, no longer, unless you're Sean Ryan, who just sold agent night, you know, night agent. Um, 20 to 25 minutes and on Zoom should be shorter. You should rehearse your pitch. You should time your pitch. You should come in on those times. And the, again, the pilot story is only a very small portion of that 10 to 15, 10 to 12 minutes or 20 to 25 minutes. And, and record yourself giving the pitch as Absolutely. if so you can kind Practice of see it. how And I know somebody who's a terrific pitcher and what she said is, and this is what I believe, you write out the pitch word for word, then you transcribe it into bullet points and then you practice using the bullet points. Some people read their pitch. If you're a good performer, you can read your pitch, but make it sound conversational. A good pitch is conversational for sure. Um, so write it, practice it, record yourself so that you can hear the pacing in it. So you've got that right. So you can time it. I had a mentee in my CBS program who was fantastic. In my program, you have to introduce yourself 16 times because there's 16 weeks and people got to the point, the writers got to the point where it sounded totally rehearsed. But Bradley had a way to make it sound like it was the first time every time. 
And the way he did it is he would say something and then he'd pause for a beat as if he was actually thinking about what the next thing was he was going to say. And he had some funny parts to a story and he would chuckle a little bit, you know, not like out <laughs> laugh out loud, but, you know, just kind of chuckle so that they could chuckle with him. And his introductions always sounded like they were off the cuff. You want this to sound like it's off the cuff, but you know it backwards and forwards. So he's, he's telling a little bit about himself and then the pitch? Well, Bradley wasn't pitching. That, that was just, it's a 16-week program, and every week I bring in different speakers, and the writers have to just introduce themselves to each of the speakers. I'm sorry if that was confusing. No, no, that's, I find that interesting. Okay, so they're kind of practicing that, that because we all don't really want to talk about ourselves sometimes, so it's right. like, hi, I'm so-and-so, and this is my deal, and is, is that it? So you're comfortable kind of owning who you are? Yes, I teach them. I mean, that's one of the things I teach, is sure. your entertainment industry brand, and you need to know how to talk about yourself in a way that is engaging and gets people leaning forward and wanting to know more. So I teach that to the mentees in the Paramount Writers Mentoring Program. And over 16 weeks, they hone it and hone it and hone it. So that by the end of the 16 weeks, they can talk about themselves like that. And Bradley was just a champ at it. What are some common mistakes that you see in pitches? Ooh, I love that question because there's so many mistakes that people make. Sadly, it's sad when you make this mistake is not being prepared, is going in and thinking, I can wing it. Now, here's the truth. There's some stand-up comics, there's some improv people that really can, but unless you're that person, you can't. You should be, they're not prepared enough. The other is going beat by beat by beat of the pilot story. I, there's a sad story that I like to tell from when I was an executive. A very well-established comedy writer came in and pitched to us. And he was talking about the pilot story. And he was going beat by beat by beat. And my colleague fell asleep. It was horrifying. Um, and he said to my boss, the writer said to my boss, he fell asleep. And my boss said, no, no, he's just resting his eyes so he can hear you better. But... That's something you don't want to do. Go beat by, it's, it's overview. You want to give the big picture, not every single scene. What's the difference between telling versus selling? I have a mantra that I believe in so strongly. It's tell, don't sell. If you're desperate, if you're there just to sell the project, chances are really good you won't. What you should be there to do is to tell an engaging, exciting, funny, or moving story. And what I tell people is pretend that you're talking to a five-year-old. Your whole vibe should be once upon a time. Not, well, this is about this, but once upon a time in a forest, there was. That's how you know you're telling. And selling is, oh man, I got to tell you, this is the best thing you ever heard of and uh, it's going to be great and don't do that. It's a terrible idea. So add an element of performance. Absolutely. Okay. But 
even if you're not a natural born performer, and I do talk about this in my class, if you know your material well enough and you're comfortable enough, you'll be able to talk about it as if you were talking to a friend and you don't need to do bada, 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 just you're yourself, but it's like you're talking to friends and you're comfortable and it's upbeat and it's engaging. That's all you need to be. Modesty versus bragging. This is a tough one for people. We all think we're being modest. Sometimes we don't come across that way to people. How do we know? How do we know people are perceiving us as this braggart or humble bragging or, or the worst, a do-gooder on social media, but it's really self-serving? Yes. It's so hard being a supermodel. That's, that's okay. not what you want to do. <laughs> okay. Um, you need to have friends that can give you honest feedback. Another thing is you're going to get feedback from the world. If people are leaning in, that means that you're saying something they want to hear. They like you or they're interested in you. If people are leaning back, it means that you're a jerk or you're boring. And I once heard a Hollywood executive say, one of the biggest sins in Hollywood is being boring, punishable by non-employment. So don't be boring. Don't be a braggart. And, and you'll know because people will be turned off. Okay, so you'll pick up the cues, hopefully. Hopefully you do. If you keep meeting people and nothing good happens, you should check with some friends and look into yourself and see what am I doing. What is a personal log line? Well, to me, to me, your entertainment industry brand has three things. A personal log line, which answers the question, what do you do? It's about 30 or 40 seconds long, the answer, and you would use it at a party or a networking event or if you met somebody in an elevator. And it says who you are, it says what you like to write. I work with writers primarily, although I work with directors too. Um, it, it highlights what makes you memorable. It's something about you that the three people standing next to you can't say because it's your story. Um, and it's what you like to write. And um, it's why you're good at it without being a jerk. A um, little bit about, you know, it's, it's very brief. That one's brief. There's something called your personal A story. I call it that, which is when somebody says, so tell me about yourself. That is a bigger answer than what do you do? And in Hollywood, everybody wants to know what you do. But the truth is they want to know what you can do for them. But you should have an answer to what do you do? Um, so your personal A story is the answer to the question, tell me about yourself. And every meeting you have, if somebody doesn't know you, they're going to ask you to tell them about yourself. It's about a minute and a half to two minutes long, the answer. And the answer is, it's a chronological narrative of your life with you as the protagonist. It emphasizes your successes and what makes you memorable. And the narrative through line is where you started, what you had to overcome to get to where you are, 
where you are and what you want to do next. And it's all conversational. Wow. Okay. So how much oversharing are we doing though with the overcoming? Cause I know we're in a space of now being right. very transparent about many things. Don't be too personal. Don't, and, and here's a, a real bottom line. Don't make the person who's listening to you stop to feel sorry for you because that gets them out of the flow and you'll never get them back. Good, good point there. Okay. So, and we're, we're doing this in a fun with, a, we're keeping it light. It's yes. a fun twist. We're not going to keep it, you know, when you say overcome, should I just say, and I had to overcome bad hair days in high school, like keep Maybe. it Maybe, or you could say, you know light. what? I grew up in poverty and I had to work really hard to get somebody to let me read a book. This isn't it, of course. And it all depends on how you say it. You know, and it really is good to sprinkle in, I was so fortunate. You know, I grew up in poverty and nobody in my family ever thought you could make a living as a writer, but I was so fortunate because I had a sixth grade teacher who told me I was a storyteller, that I could write. And so I pursued that and I got to but again, we're keeping it upbeat. We're not, yes. we're not making the, we're not putting this guilt on the person receiving our story. Right. Guilt or feeling sorry for you or doing that. Mm, okay. Don't make them do that. Okay. Great to know. And, and we're peppering in fun little facts about ourselves. Yeah. You know, I'm Karen. I came here to write the next Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah. Okay. I came here to rent, write the... Next little sunshine. And I was surprised that I ended up having to clean up disaster areas. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's sunshine cleaning. Oh, but that's, that's a good, that's a good one You're too. Right. No, it absolutely is. <laughs> but that's um, a good one. That I love yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah. Amy Adams is Little amazing. Miss Sunshine yeah, was, was, the, was the little the, girl. The, in the pageants with Greg Kinnear. Yes. And, and, yes. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, it should be engaging. Now, you may not be a comic. You may not be a funny person. You don't have to be. You need to be engaging. Just make sure that they're engaged in what you have to say and say it in a way that feels authentic. You can be passionate about it and just use your storytelling skills. This time the story you're telling is about yourself, which is just as important as telling a story in a script. How self-effacing should we be? Let's not be a braggart. We don't want to say, yeah, it was so hard, you know, all these guys wanted to date me and things like that. That's going to turn people off. But how much of, quote, putting yourself down is also a turn off? Don't put yourself down. You never need to put yourself down. What you can do if you want to talk about your accomplishments, here's an inside tip, is say, I was so fortunate that I won that contest. I was thrilled when I found out that my script made it on the blacklist. I was so excited when I discovered that I knew Paul Newman. That's such an old reference. That I knew... Um, I would still use that. Yeah, thank good. you. I thank like you. It. Um, <laughs> that I knew uh, Steven Spielberg. Sure. You know, that's how you take the sort of stink off of saying your accomplishments. But don't put yourself down. 
No, that is not attractive. Think about going on a date with somebody. If they're, that's not self-effacing. That's like being so humble to the point you're putting yourself down. That's not attractive. You're, you're in a meeting and it's like a date. It's, I want to know that you think well of yourself, not to the point that you're obnoxious, but that you have confidence. Think about a date. You want somebody who's confident. Being honest about oneself without being crass. Right. Um, read the room. If you're working in a nightclub, there are things you can say that you shouldn't be saying in a 10 a.m. meeting with a current executive. Um, read the room. You can push it a little bit. You can be sort of surprising without being like, Ew, do you know what I mean? Or that you offend somebody. Don't be offensive. That, that should be like the first rule. Don't be offensive. You know, ugh, just don't be offensive. Sure, so read the room. So if you're going into a, a, a sort of a mixer and it's at a bar, that's one thing. If you're going to sort of a PTA meeting, you're not Ex going to be using the same humor. Exactly, okay. exactly. What's the unspoken Hollywood dress code? Casual, but professional. Do not go into a meeting with a suit unless you want to be an agent. Nobody wears, and even agents don't wear suits anymore. It should be clean. It should be, if, if, if you're somebody who has interesting clothes, that's great, but not something that's, you know, like you're going to a cocktail party. This is like a meeting. Um, Casual, but know that this is not really a casual business. It looks casual, but it's a business. So, you know, you might wear a sport coat if you're a guy or somebody that likes to wear coats, sport coats. Um, but I wouldn't wear a tie with it. No. And I also wouldn't wear like a shabby t-shirt with a hole in it. Don't do that. Don't wear anything that has like questionable writing on it. Right. Okay. So your mom says hi is probably not a good <laughs> And you're not sure the humor is going to be received exactly. at that. Right. Okay. But exactly. you know, what if you're a comedy writer though? You're still taking yourself seriously enough to wear something to, presentable. Yeah. But if you're a comedy writer and you do have a t-shirt that's not offensive, but it's funny. Okay. Make sure it's funny to everybody. Right. That's um, true. That's true. You can wear that. Okay. Good to know. And I say, if you're somebody that wears jewelry, wear something really interesting. It's sort of a conversation starter. What if a writer believes that Hollywood has not created anything new in the last 20 years, anything original, and that a lot of, I mean, awful is, is a strong word, but they have sort of a bitterness towards the writing and they feel like Hollywood won't give them a chance. They're not gonna get a chance with that attitude. Um, if you feel like nothing good has been written in 20 years, who wants to talk to you? Who, who, and you feel that your thing is the best thing that's been written in 20 years, you're probably delusional and people will run in the other direction. What if someone wants to write something a little more conservative and they feel that their values don't line up? Find a place where your values 
will line up. Find the outlet where your values will line up. Look at what that company has produced and go towards the place where they're making content that feels like it shares your values. What mindset or attitude should a writer have? Optimistic, excited without being annoying, um, interested, interested in the other person, um, feeling like there are some great things out there. It, it speaks to what you said before. What if you think nothing good has been written? They think there's some great content and they say, that's the kind of content I want to make. So the attitude is one of possibility, of optimism, of being upbeat again without being annoying, of being interested, of being passionate. Okay. We're friendly, but we're not Pollyanna. Friendly without being your best friend. Do you know what I mean? Don't ah. do that. Don't, don't assume that this person wants to be friends with you, best friends with you. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay. It's like a date. It's like a date. How does someone show they're a leader without speaking it? By how you carry yourself, by your confidence. Again, confidence, not, not braggardness, not obnoxiousness. Um, somebody who has quiet confidence, somebody who's decisive, you know, would you like water or a Diet Coke? I'll have the water, please. Even just that. If you go, um, uh, I, no, that, no, that's not leadership. You had talked about something in, in some of your either course notes or something that, you know, showing an attitude that the person's a team player. Well, how do we see that? Because if I say I'm a team player. You can't say you you're can't, a team yeah. player. Okay. Um, it's by having a sense of self-worth. That's what you have to come in with. Have boundaries. Be friendly, but not, again, a puppy dog. Um, and if you're interested in somebody else, with, not to the detriment of you, but if you have the confidence to be interested in somebody and ask about them and also talk about yourself, which is a fine line and sometimes hard, um, somebody may see you interact with somebody else. You're going to order a coffee or a drink and you're a B word or a S word or any other kind of word. And they, here's another thing, speaking about that, how you treat assistance says so much about you. If you, I, when I was hiring somebody, when I was at Amblin, this person came in, he was mean to my assistant. He never even had a chance. He was really qualified, but he didn't have a chance. So it's how you treat other people. Again, without being snivelly and, and, and sort of rolling over and saying, please, please, please. But I have something to offer and I think you'll like it. You may not, that's okay too. Um, in, the, in the most positive kind of a way. How does someone show they're a team player? Oh, how do you show you're a team player? By listening to other, team players are people that listen to other people and they add 
something to what that person said that elevates what that person said. They chip in, they're willing to be part of a group and their, their mindset is how can I help this group? How can I add to this? How can I be additive? You know, we hear you have to know the right people in the entertainment industry. How do you identify who the right people are? The right people are people who respond to who you are. They're people that have some authority. They're people who can make things happen. There's people who have relationships with other people. They may be decision makers. Those are the right people. They're people who know decision makers in a positive way. They're people who want to lift you up. That's the right people. Once you identify the right person or people, how do you meet them? The great news is there's social media. You can go to events. I mean, now that the pandemic is sort of kind of in the rearview mirror, there are live events again. The Writers Guild of America Foundation, I, I mean, we're in the middle of a strike right now, so nothing is going to happen then. But when the strike is over, they have live in-person panels and you can go. Think about meeting peers, people at your level, rather than I've got to go rush and talk to the speaker. Meet people at your level. They'll come up with you at the same time. Um, events, social media, you can, if, if there's somebody who you would like to meet and they're on social media, you can like what they post. You can repost it or retweet it. You can make a comment about it. Like I really loved the episode about the freight train. And then you say, you know, I grew up on a freight train. It really was authentic. You can do that. And if you do that enough, they'll get to know who you are and you might DM them and say, I'm such a huge fan of yours and I'm an aspiring writer. If you ever had 15 minutes for a Zoom coffee, I'd love to hear about your journey and maybe get some advice. Now, you can't do that with somebody that's up here. Do that with lower and mid-level people. You don't need to meet the president of the studio. You just need to meet some people who are in farther than you are. And again, it takes time. It's not, yes. it's, it's not follow someone and then, hey, ask them. <laughs> hey, I'm a writer. Will you read my script? We talked about that. Don't ask people to read your script until you have a true relationship with them. You know, you don't like the word networking. You said connecting. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, that's a great alternative. What else should a new writer know about connecting? You should have your story so that when somebody says, what do you do? You can answer that in a interesting way. You should know who you're going to be meeting with if you possibly can and do some research about them. So you, you should be open and friendly and be interested in the other person. Again, not step all over yourself, but it should be 70% about them and 30% about you. Ask about that. Now there's somebody who will start talking and never stop talking about themselves. 
go say, excuse me, I have to get a drink and leave. But for most people, be interested in other people. That goes, think about the people you know who are friendly and have a lot of friends. They are interested in other people. That's what you want to do when you're connecting. And you want to look for a genuine connection. And if it's not there, that's okay. Go on to the next person. We all feel stuck at times. What do we do if we're just not creative? We're not on all cylinders, right? There's a couple of different ways to get unstuck. Um, I actually teach an online course about getting unstuck. And we talk about if you're stuck because you have writer's block or procrastination, there's actual tips and tools that you can use to get past it. And one of them is to give yourself very short periods of time to work. 10 minutes, set a timer. You can either do free writing. You could say, I like that butterfly, but, and then when the timer goes off, get up and go someplace else. And then the next day, come back for 10 minutes or 30 minutes. And the other is really to be clear about what your true goals are. And then make sure everything you're choosing in your life, how you're spending your time, is moving you towards that goal. It's super important. And then it's looking at what's getting in the way of you achieving your goals and seeing what you can change, how you can adjust your life so that you're moving towards your goal more efficiently. Yeah, there's debate. Is writer's block real? Yeah, it is. It's fear. It's fear of failure. It's fear of success. It's fear of imposter syndrome. I've had too many clients that had it to say it's not real. I don't know who's saying that, but my experience is that people truly are blocked, but you can absolutely get unblocked. That is really possible. And how much of being stuck is burnout? Some of it is burnout. Some of stuckness is burnout. And if that's what it is, you need to take a break. Go to the mountains, go to the seashore, go camping, um, walk in the woods, uh, be with friends who you like and cherish and who love you. Um, be in nature. I know I said that 15 times. I think that's really important. Step away for a little bit. Do things that are fun. Recharge your batteries. Um, and don't keep pressing on yourself to go forward, forward, forward if you're burned out. Take, it's, it's about self-care. You have to take care of yourself. You have to eat right. You have to exercise. You have to get enough sleep. I don't know how you can be creative if you're not getting enough sleep. And sometimes you have to work two jobs. I understand it. But whatever you can do to take care of yourself really helps to combat burnout. And staying off social media for a while. What a great idea. Go on a social media diet. Take a hiatus because all you're going to see are people that you see. They're succeeding. God darn it. Why aren't I? And the pressure is too intense. Absolutely take a holiday from social media. I couldn't agree with you more. When people come to you to take the course, what are some of the biggest reasons they've become stuck? Really good question. They're not able to write new material or 
good material. They feel burned out. They are afraid. They're afraid they'll never write again. They're afraid they'll never get another job. They're concerned that they don't know enough people and they don't know how to meet enough people. They're stuck. They're stuck in their career. They don't know how to reach out and ask for help. They don't know what it takes to meet people. To, to, they don't know their brand. And so they keep having these opportunities and they blow their opportunities because they don't know how to talk about themselves. And, and is that off-putting then if, if they're, because they're, they're struggling with kind of coming up with who they are? That it's not that it's off-putting, but you're missing an opportunity for somebody to be invested in you and interested in you. They're doing the same thing over and over and over again and getting the same results. Someone said that's insanity. And they're, they think not, I have to do something different. They think I just have to do this harder. And that's a big mistake. We hear this invest in ourselves and it sounds so cliche, but so many writers have invested probably time in contests and who knows, film festivals, whatever. How many of them actually take the time to invest as, as cliche and sort of whatever as it sounds in themselves? Not, not everybody. And the truth is that writers spend tons of money on the course that's going to teach them how to write the best the next best screenplay, but they don't spend the money on how they can improve their chances, not just a script. People really feel in this business like if I write a great script, it's the golden ticket, it's the Willy Wonka golden ticket, I don't have to do anything else. There's tons of other things you have to do and learning what those are is worth investing in and having support for what you want to do is worth investing in. Absolutely. Because where people get stuck is with their work, um, with their attitude, with their community not being big enough. You have to have an ever-growing community of mutually beneficial relationships. It's learning how to talk about themselves. Where they also get stuck is they don't have someone to be accountable to. Having that accountability is huge if you want to make a change. In your course, are you offering accountability partners or mentors? Good question. In the course, we talk about finding an accountability partner. It might be somebody from your life. It might be somebody in the class. And what that person's job is, is, to, is for you to say to them, this is what I'm going to do and this is when I'm going to do it and they hold you to it. Um, I talk about something called bookending, where if there's something difficult you have to do, you have to make a phone call, you have to write a scene that's so challenging, you have to go to an event that you don't wanna to go to. You call your, or text or email your accountability partner first. You say, I'm gonna do this thing. And then as soon as you do it, you contact them again and say, I did it. It's like checking a box. It feels so good. Do you also talk about building a network? I know networking is sort of a, That's a funny okay. word. Um, community. Uh, building, building a community. A okay. community of mutually beneficial relationships. This business is 
based on relationships. Everybody knows that. The more people you know, the more chances there are that you're going to find out about an opportunity or an opportunity will present themselves. Now, there's a lot of people that are stuck because they don't want to go to events. They don't want to ask people for help. They're the opposite of somebody that says, hi, read my script. They're people that have met people who've said, I'd like to help you and they never follow up. Following up is a big thing. So many of my clients say, I met all these great people and I just let it go cold. How do I get back to having a relationship with them? And I talk about that in the course. Um, the more people you know in, a, in an authentic way, the more opportunity is going to come your way. 